Dear Heavenly Father, what a privilege it is, Father, to open your word and to teach it and to hear it and to spend our days meditating upon it. Just the privilege, Father, that we live where we can take our time and and do this, Father, without any fear of retribution and uh, without any persecution, Father. That's not something most over the history of your church have had the opportunity to enjoy. And I fear, Father, we won't enjoy it forever. But, uh, Father, in the meantime, we're so thankful for that opportunity. Let's let's make the most of it, Father. Give us the heart and desire to make this a priority every week as you've done in so many weeks past. Help us, Father, to sense the urgency of of the need to know these things and to be prepared to witness to what we've learned for the the need, Father, to share the word, not to rely on on other things, other methods, on man-made inventions, thinking that we can outsmart what you put in your own word, Father. But let us be devoted to it, dependent upon it, committed by it to a life that pleases you and, and obeys you in everything we do. And we ask, Lord, that what we'll learn out of Ezra's work this, uh, this evening and chapters 5 and 6 would be something that is um, not just insightful, Father, not just interesting, but something that, that cuts us and um, exposes our heart and demonstrates to us the holiness of God and the, the power that you possess and, and how important it is, Father, that we would seek to please you in all that we do, just as you commanded Israel to do so long ago. We ask these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for those who don't remember, we left off with Israel stopped in their progress of building the temple. That was the end of chapter four. They did that because the enemies of Israel had succeeded in intimidating them and then ultimately bribing some of the officials of Cyrus's government so that they wouldn't find any relief when they appealed to Cyrus. And in the course of what they had done up to that point, they had built the foundation. They had celebrated and worshipped at the foundation. But then when the going got tough, as the saying goes, they retreated and return to their homes and to their lives and to their daily pursuits. And as you remember, we learned from Haggai that they even went to the point of pilfering building supplies from the, old, the temple's work site and used it for their own homes. And 15 years goes by under those circumstances. 15 years with the temple foundation and nothing more and everyone else busy in their lives. Were there no more to this story, the events we have up through chapter 4 of Ezra would cast doubt about the Israelites' determination and commitment to do the work that they were called to do when they were set free and sent down to Jerusalem in the first place, wouldn't it? Jesus himself even told the parable of the one who would begin the building of a tower and not finish it. And because they did not consider the cost required to do the work, they ended up not with a monument as a testimony to their steadfastness and commitment and faithfulness, but rather a monument to their wavering and inability to stick with what they started with. So that's what we would have short of chapters five and beyond. We know that the Lord didn't intend for Israel to stop. And we know that for one reason above all, because he sent them two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, to declare to them that the building must continue. So clearly they aren't in his will, at least in the sense that they aren't doing what he would prefer as they sit idle. We might ask them, why did he permit the delay in the first place? Why did he not protect Israel from the threats of those enemies that came upon them. Wouldn't you expect that if the Lord has delivered his people back to the land after 70 years of captivity in a manner that he orchestrated, that he would be willing to protect them from this kind of an interruption? Why didn't he just intervene to protect them? Well, if you're asking that question, and you are now because I did, 
then in reality, you're asking the wrong question because you should be asking what makes the people think that the Lord wasn't protecting them. Remember, they stopped at the first sign of resistance. They stopped only by threat, only by those who would try to intimidate. There was that that little uh, sidebar within the chapter of chapter four of Ezra that we saw Ezra recounting later times in their history when they were intimidated. And in those later times, there is the force of arms brought to the scene to stop the work. But we learned that that was not in the chronology of what's happening here. That's a reference to what happened to the people in Jerusalem at a later point when Nehemiah is building the wall. And we looked at that, as you remember, last week. So in this first instance, as they're trying to build nothing more than the temple at this point, the only thing they saw was people making them feel uncomfortable. And Cyrus's uh, government bribed against intervening to assist them. So they never bothered to test the threats of the enemies, and they never bothered to find out if the Lord would have protected them had they continued building. They just stopped the building. And you can say they stopped building before the Lord stopped protecting. We're studying Ezra, as you know, and we're going to later study Nehemiah. But as we go through this study, we're also looking at a pattern, as I've mentioned, a pattern of discipline, of God's disciplining those who rebel and of God's restoration for those who humble themselves and return. And when the Lord begins to restore his children in fellowship after a period of discipline, the first step we've learned already in that in that stepping stone of of restoration, the first step is one of reestablishing true worship, not in the sense of a worship service, not in the sense of activity, but in the sense of the heart and in the perspective we have of who God is. Are we willing to humble our hearts? That was the question that comes in the beginning. Will we follow him away from comfort, away from things that tempt us? Will we seek him free from the pretense and the hypocrisy that may have marked our prior period of rebellion? And will we submit despite difficulties and trials that will accompany true discipleship? And that's the last piece we've looked at in the very end of chapter four. This piece of willing to withstand the attacks that come to those who stand with God. If the answer to any of these questions is no, if someone would not humble themselves, if they will not step away from their comforts that tempt them, if they will not do the things I just listed, then their forward progress halts. This progress of restoration just goes into neutral. And in a sense, they find themselves in no man's land, neither under discipline, yet neither fully restored. God tests hearts early when they are in that progress of restoration and through trial to learn Are they truly turned and dependent upon me or is there any wavering? If we pass those tests as they are coming to us, we will be strengthened for the work that lies ahead according to God's purpose. But if we fail them, the Lord, thankfully, does not give up for he is faithful even when we are faithless. What we're seeing now at the end of chapter four and the beginning of chapter five is an Israel that got stuck in neutral early in their progression of restoration and yet as well a God who is still determined to move them forward. And he's been doing so through the prophets. And now we will see the next step. When their enemies approached and asked to join the work, there was a moment of progress in the way Zerubbabel wisely declined their offer. And you could say that they passed the test of wisdom at that stage. But when they retaliated with their threats, then you see Israel failing in their test of faith, a faith in God's power to defeat those enemies. Despite that, God is still going to work to turn all things to good for this nation. And in fact, as we're going to see later, this delay was actually one made necessary first by their weak faith 
but also by God's prophecy. For the delay that they incurred fits perfectly into the timeline that God himself prophesied earlier through the prophet Daniel. Had they not delayed, the the timeline would not have worked. Daniel 9 told the Jews that they could time the Messiah's arrival in Jerusalem according to the declaration of an order to rebuild the temple. That declaration was given at first by Cyrus. Later, it's going to be repeated by other Persian kings, as we'll see tonight. And Daniel said that the Messiah's arrival in Jerusalem and his eventual killing or being cut off would happen 483 years after the decree to rebuild Jerusalem. That timeline also has an in-between moment in which the prophet times the point at which the temple will be finished. And it's that finishing point that moves according to how long it takes them to build. And had they not been delayed, then that point in Daniel would have been wrong. In other words, the Lord has accommodated the 15 years of delay in the timeline as he spoke it to Daniel, which tells us he knew it was coming, which tells us that he's accommodated that in his planning around the whole thing. Even when God's children sin, he has the power to both anticipate and accommodate that sin and yet still use it to discipline us all the more. So now we begin in chapter four and five to see where Israel goes. That's where we are. Look at chapter five, verses one and two. When the prophets Haggai, the prophet and Zechariah, the son of Idol, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel, who was over them, then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatiel and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. As I've already alluded to, and as we saw last week, the prophets are at work moving Israel back to the building. And it's finally Zerubbabel and Jeshua that assume the role of rising to rebuild. But again, notice there's no clear leader. We got two guys doing it. Obviously not just one person leading Israel. In fact, if you were to credit the change of heart to anyone, it would have to be the prophets. And that's just an indirect way of crediting God. Also notice that nothing else has changed to make the resumption of the work possible. This is proof of what I've said a moment ago. There is no new edict here from the king. There is no one to come alongside them and defend them from their enemies. The enemies haven't been defeated. The enemies haven't given up. There's no indication they've gone anywhere. The only thing that changed is Israel got up and started building again. Then verses 3 through 5. At that time, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar, Bozanai, and their colleagues came to them and spoke to them thus. Who issued you a decree to rebuild this temple and to finish this structure? Then we told them accordingly what the names of the men were who were reconstructing this building. But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until a report could come to Darius, and then a written reply be returned concerning it. As we see, at some point, as they're going about the building process again, word gets out, and the governor of this province, this is a Persian governor who has responsibility for the province that includes Jerusalem, he gets word of this construction and his name, Tatanai, he visits the Jews and asks them a very simple question. Who gave you permission to do what you're doing? Perhaps Israel's enemies put this man up to this, the same ones who were intimidating earlier. But I don't actually think that's what happened here. I think it's more likely that this has nothing to do with the prior enemies, that in fact, it is the political climate of Persia in this day that's responsible for the concern of the governor. The Persian Empire at this point in history had just come through a really rocky period of upheaval and treachery. Cyrus, the first king of Persia after the conquest of Babylon, he dies in 530 BC. His son, Cambyses, assumes the throne upon his father's death. 
But Cambyses' rule was immediately challenged, and he spent most of his eight years in power defending his throne against one rebellion or another somewhere in the empire. Eventually, the people of Persia pulled their support from him. He lost the general support of the population of of Persia. Once he had lost their confidence, he commits suicide eight years after he becomes king. The Persian army at that point threw its support for the next king behind a distant cousin of Cambyses, a man named Darius I. So Darius, with the army's support, was able to consolidate power, come into the rule of Persia at that point, and he puts an end to most of the rebellions in that time. So at the point that Tatanai's come and seen this construction project, the new king and his new government are still very wary of any source or indication of rebellion anywhere in the kingdom. Anything that might be emerging that could pose a threat is of concern to him and to his new government. It's in that climate of suspicion that the Jews decide to start rebuilding their city and temples and walls. This is a city that has a history of being opposed to foreign kings. So naturally, the governor is concerned about what's your purpose in doing this? Makes sense. So he asked the Jews, who gave you permission to do what you're doing? Ezra says that the leading men of the construction project, and we know them to be men like Zerubbabel and Yeshua, they give their names to Tatanai. Notice Ezra says, we told Tatanai the names. And that might imply to you and I that Ezra was present, but we know that Ezra is not actually here yet. Ezra doesn't join the Jews for another 60 years. So when he says we, what he's referring to is the Jewish people, of which he is one of them. So you would be saying, we the Jews told this man. Why is he emphasizing we told him this? That the Jews said this. Because the point is the Jews aren't backing down this time like they did last time. They're standing up and they're giving their names. And they're saying, you go back and tell them it's us who are building this temple. Because they now have the confidence to continue. They aren't intimidated. And this is in stark contrast to what they did the last time somebody showed up on their door and said, what are you doing? It would seem that the Lord has intentionally brought them yet another test of exactly the same kind. And shortly after they begin building again, so that he would give Israel this second chance to prove their faith. In other words, it's a retest. I think this is something God does routinely. That as long as we are moving a path that he orchestrates and we're moving down it, he's content to give us success through his power, though not without trial and not without difficulty. But in that is the benefit in our spiritual growth through the process comes the benefit. If you fail that test, though, there's no more progress potentially at that point. As I said, you get stuck, spiritually speaking, at a point in your maturity and you just stay there until you're willing to deal with what God has brought you. Because were you not able to take the test of that moment and move on, how are you going to handle any of the ones that come later? Again, I don't mean to make this sound like it's some formula. Everyone's life is different and God works in in ways of his own. But as a general principle for how we see God working to build us up and using trials for the purpose of building us up, we should expect that when things come our way that are difficult and that are tests of faith and endurance and patience and love, we pass those tests by doing what we know the Spirit is calling us to do and we will in his power succeed in the way he expects. Then the next thing will come. And our spiritual maturity is growing all the way. And we will find the process to be one that is a great blessing to us, certainly in the kingdom. So depending on how we respond to the test God brings, we either demonstrate spiritual growth and move forward, or we demonstrate spiritual immaturity, in which case we're left where we are. Meanwhile, God continues to bring us trials, retests, until we finally get the point. And eventually we return to a path of growth, a general process 
not necessarily one that's exact in everybody's life. I should also mention that this process I just described has limits in God's patience. The writer of Hebrews warns us that if we do not press on to maturity through this kind of a process, eventually we risk being left behind. The writer of Hebrews says this in chapter 6, verses 4 through 8. For in the case of those who have been once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. For ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. A classic passage of the warning to believers who do not press on to maturity, who, having been given so many great gifts in the Holy Spirit, nevertheless fall away. Apostasia. Apostasia means they go through a period of apostasy, which is to say they turn away from what they know they should do. Apostasy comes in many flavors, many forms, many strengths, many contexts. But it's certainly a term we can apply to what we saw going on in Israel in the time that they set about in building the temple. They had a chance to do something and they chose to set it aside, go back and live in their own life. And they needed prophets to come alongside and say to them, what are you doing? Get back to work. That's a measure of grace that God would offer them that opportunity. Wouldn't you agree? What the writer of Hebrews tells us, though, is don't test God's patience. He may not give you the grace of a return because it's impossible to renew you by repentance. And he's referring there to the repentance that accompanies salvation, because once you're saved, you can't be saved again. There's no second moment of repenting from a life of dead works and turning to God. There's no cathartic second chance. Only if God chooses to snap you out of your disobedience, will you have the second chance you hope for. And the writer of Hebrews warns us, you cannot presume that he's willing to do that forever. You're better to stay on the path to begin with than to risk the possibility of not being able to return. So Israel, in our case, has been given that second chance of sorts, another opportunity to respond to the challenge of God's enemies. They have responded, and this time they have succeeded at that test. Notice in verse 5, if you want further evidence that this is something that's on their mind, rather than me just projecting it as if I know, look what's said in verse 5. We're told that the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews. Now, what that means is that the elders knew the Lord was watching them closely to see how the elders responded to this challenge. I is a reference here to God is watching. Would they retreat as they had done before or have they learned their lesson? And the elders knew that the Lord was watching them. So the elders stood up and gave the names. And look at the second half of the verse. After they give their names, it says they don't stop working. Even as they wait for the verdict to come back from Darius through a letter that's about to be delivered. Nonetheless, even in that period, we're told they continue building even as they wait for that response. Further evidence that this is a stark difference from the last encounter, a sign that they have passed this test. So if they pass this test, God will move them on to the next phase. So now the Lord responds in verses six. And I'm going to read all the way six through 17. This is one of those sections in which you're seeing Ezra recount the letter that was sent up to the king. Remember, all this writing that's being done back and forth was being done in Aramaic. So as Ezra recounts both the letter of chapter four, now this letter and another one that's coming in chapter six, these letters having been written in Aramaic, that's why these three chapters were all written entirely in Aramaic, even in the original Hebrew scrolls, 
because Ezra, rather than switch between Hebrew and then Aramaic and then Hebrew and Aramaic, he just stayed in Aramaic for three chapters because so much of it is about these letters anyway. Thankfully, it's in English for us, so we're just going to pursue it on. Six, this is the copy of the letter which Tathanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar, Bozanai, and his colleagues, the officials who were beyond the river, sent to Darius the king. They sent a report to him in which it was written thus, to Darius the king, all peace. Let it be known to the king that we have gone to the province of Judah, to the house of the great God, which is being built with huge stones and beams are being laid in the walls. And this work is going on with great care and is succeeding in their hands. Then we asked those elders and said to them, thus, who issued you a decree to rebuild this temple and to finish this structure? We also asked them their names so as to inform you and that we might write down the names of the men who were at their head. Thus, they answered us, saying, we are the servants of the God of heaven and earth and are rebuilding the temple that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. But because our fathers had provoked the God of heaven to wrath, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this temple and deported the people to Babylon. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, King Cyrus issued a decree to rebuild this house of God. Also, the gold and silver utensils of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem and brought them to the temple of Babylon, these King Cyrus took from the temple of Babylon and they were given to one whose name was Sheshbazar, whom he had appointed governor. He said to him, take these utensils, go and deposit them in the temple in Jerusalem and let the house of God be rebuilt in its place. Then that Sheshbazar came and laid the foundations of the house of God in Jerusalem. And from then until now, it has been under construction and it is not yet completed. Now, if it pleases the king, let a search be conducted in the king's treasure house, which is there in Babylon. If it be that a decree was issued by King Cyrus to rebuild this house of God at Jerusalem and let the king send to us his decision concerning this matter. This letter is remarkable for more than just what it tells us about Darius and the whole events. It's remarkable also for what it tells us about Israel. The governor does this very admirable job of telling the whole story. It's very even handed. It's very objective, right? Very different from the way the other one was written, of course, the one that was earlier sent up. And the features of this letter argue strongly that the governor was not an enemy here. I mean, he's just an official trying to do his job and he's trying to be fair about it. But I love the way he describes, for example, God of Israel as the great God. Very interesting. It would suggest that perhaps the Persians still understood the power of the Lord, perhaps from his past work in Egypt. Perhaps those stories are still reverberating as they were said to have done. But anyways, he goes through this whole report. First, he describes the whole building project. He says they got big stones. They've got they've got big wood out there. This is not some little building. I just need you to know they're building something big. In other words, it's impressive. And if it's going to be impressive, then it might be a significant threat. It's worthy of the king's attention is the point. And secondly, then he describes his interrogation of the builders. I think there's a little self-service in this. He's saying, look, I went after him. I went right up to him. I asked him their names because I knew I knew you would want to know who these guys were. But that in itself is further confirmation for us of the threat that was implied by the interrogation of this man, that the ones who were doing the work knew where these names were going. They knew that if what they were doing was displeasing to the king, they're dead. They're going to be dead. And yet, no fear. They stood right up. They answered. And then he says, the men who talked to me said that what they were engaged in was a building project to create a religious structure, one that had previously stood in this place and was destroyed by the Babylonians. And then, and this is my favorite part of the letter, then the Jews' response is recorded 
almost it would seem verbatim in the letter, to include their own recounting of how they got in this situation to begin with. They, they acknowledge, yeah, the Lord, he did this. He took us out. This was his work. He destroyed our own temple. Why? Because we were disobedient. It's a confession, or at least as close as you've seen one so far. They also acknowledge, look, Nebuchadnezzar was the bad guy, but the Lord used his army to accomplish this task. So they're looking past Nebuchadnezzar at this point, and they're looking at the Lord as the cause of all things, as the direct cause of this outcome. They're not confused, in other words, about the fact that he used a man to do it. And he did so, they said, as an outpouring of wrath because of our disobedience. When you see the people of Israel making these declarations to the Persian governor, you see repentance or the fruit of it at work. They are acknowledging all the things you'd expect to hear in a true confession. They acknowledge their past misery was a product of God's wrath, which means it's a product of their own sin. They acknowledge that God's wrath came because of their disobedience to his word. And now they say they are determined to please him, even in the face of opposition and threats. That's the whole process. That's the whole cycle of repentance. My fault. God did the right thing. Now I'm going to do the right thing. If you're a parent and you have children, that's more or less what you want to hear from them when they are in trouble. I did the wrong thing. You're doing the right thing by disciplining me. And now I want to do the right thing in response to that. Not it's your fault, not you're being mean. No, it's not my fault. Someone else did it. All of that evasiveness just tells you you're not getting through yet. What do you do to a child when you're not getting through to them? The punishment just goes on longer or gets worse, right? In the case of God, it's not always exactly the same. There's mercy, there's a grace. But at the same time, as a just and holy God who has our best interests at heart, there's a place and a role for discipline. And now you see the effect of 70 years in captivity. Now you see the effect of 15 years plus the prophets calling them back to the work. You see people who are beginning to get it, at least this generation, at least for a time. And so, in short, they've come to fear the Lord more than they fear men. And that's the turning point that God desires. And that's what he's working to produce in their hearts and in ours. That's his method. The place that he wants us to be is a place where we no longer have an excuse or a defense for our mistakes. The place where we recognize that the Lord is the one moving in our life to bring us into a state of discipline for our own good. That we are not the victims of chance. It's not someone else's fault. It's not unfair. It's exactly the way it needed to be because of who we are. And now that we get all of that. We are willing to work to please him, in part to escape the penalties of discipline. Certainly, that makes sense. That's how it works. But also because we are unwilling to offend him again. When you reach that point, then you know restoration has begun and good things are around the corner. Now, at the end of the letter that I just read, the governor asks the new king, Darius, to conduct a search of the archives of Babylon because he says, if this story is true, you ought to be able to prove it. You ought to be able to demonstrate it. And if Cyrus did, in fact, write this down, it would have been an official record in the government of Cyrus. It would be held somewhere in the archives. Under Persian custom and in the way the Persian government ran, the decree of a former king, even a deceased one, had the force of law and it bound even future kings. So if Cyrus had, in fact, made such a declaration about the rebuilding of the temple, then even Darius couldn't stop it, even if he didn't like it, so long as it was written in the archives. So the search was necessary, and this search is going to happen regardless of what Darius thinks about the project. So then we read what Darius does. This begins chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. Then King Darius issued a decree, and the search was made in the archives where the treasures were stored in Babylon. In Ekbatana, in the fortress, 
which is in the province of Media, a scroll was found and there was written in it as follows. Memorandum. I love that, don't you? Bureaucracy has been there since the garden. In verse six, in the first year of King Cyrus, Cyrus, the king issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the temple, the place where sacrifices are offered, be rebuilt and let its foundations be retained. Its height being 60 cubits and its width 60 cubits with three layers of huge stones and one layer of timbers. And let the cost be paid from the royal treasury. Also, let the gold and silver utensils of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, be returned and brought to their place in the temple in Jerusalem. And you shall put them in the house of God. So here's what was written. Darius gets the request, issues his own order to do the search. We have to presume he did search in Babylon because that's what was requested. And that's where the headquarters of Persia was. And it was the headquarters in Cyrus's day. But you notice they don't find anything in the Babylonian archives because the next thing we know is they're now looking in this other place, Ekbatana, for archives. The summer retreat of the kings of Persia was in this place called Ekbatana, present-day Hamadan in Iran. The city sits a mile high. It sits next to a green wooded mountain. And so it's very cool in the summer, especially compared to the surrounding deserts of, of Arabia and of uh, Iran. So... It was in this place that there was another archive. So apparently Cyrus had his archives there for or at least partially there. And that's where they find the instructions. The opening word of the scroll memorandum, it could be also translated record. It's kind of funny for us because that word's still sort of the way you'd think of government records running today. Right. Well, it indicates in this case that what follows is an official record of the Persian government. And from what follows, then we learn of what Cyrus said. Only things in the letter that are new are the dimensions that this temple, he says, was going to be 60 cubits by 60 cubits. That would make it twice as high and three times as wide as Solomon's temple, as the first temple. So it's very unclear if the Jews ever attempted to follow these instructions, because from all that's been reported, the second temple was of lesser stature than the first, at least as it was initially built. And you might assume that if the old men are weeping at the site of the foundation, like we saw in the prior chapter, if that foundation had truly been much larger than the earlier one, they wouldn't have had cause to weep. They would have imagined that what's coming next is going to be big and magnificent. It would stand to reason that what they saw was a small and smaller uh, foundation than what had been built in Solomon's day, which would indicate that what Cyrus asked is not exactly what the Jews are going after to do. So he commissioned and he funded a much larger structure and yet the Jews don't seem to be doing what they've been asked. Or another way to look at it is they're not making the most of what God had provided for them to do. Interestingly, it waits until Herod to build a temple that meets the standards of what Cyrus called for. And that temple was finished after Jesus's death and torn down shortly thereafter. So after hearing of Cyrus's edict, King Darius, now he has no choice but to honor the prior king's orders and to permit the temple construction to continue. So then what he does is he follows up with his own edict as governor or to the governor so that there can now be an official ruling on what to do. And that comes in chapter six, verses six through twelve. Now, therefore, Tatanai, governor of the province beyond the river, Shithar, Bozanai and your colleagues, the officials of the provinces beyond the river, keep away from there. Leave this work on the house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, 
I issue a decree concerning what you are to do for these elders of Judah in the rebuilding of this house of God. The full cost is to be paid to these people from the royal treasury out of the taxes of the provinces beyond the river and that without delay. Whatever is needed, both young bulls, rams and lambs for a burnt offering to the God of heaven and wheat, salt, wine and anointing oil as the priests in Jerusalem request. It is to be given to them daily without fail that they may offer acceptable sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. And I issue a decree that any man who violates this edict, a timber shall be drawn from his house and he shall be impaled on it and his house shall be made a refuse heap on account of this. May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who attempts to change it so as to destroy this house of God in Jerusalem. I, Darius, have issued this decree. Let it be carried out with all diligence. Yeah, I'm guessing that the next time the governor showed up, things looked a lot different than the first time he showed up. Darius echoes Cyrus's words. His insistence with what he says here, you know, you can see it from two sides. You can see this as God and his power to influence men working to create this urgency in Darius's heart. I certainly don't discount that. But on a just human level, this also plays out in the way that Persian government would have expected. If a prior king has ordered this outcome, anyone afterward who would dare defy it could be put to death. And no king of Persia would want to be accused of violating a prior king's order especially in a climate of rebellion, for it would actually be cause for him to be taken out of power. So you didn't want to risk it if you're Darius. In fact, he goes the other direction, right? He says, it will be built and you're not going to stop it. You know, this is going to happen. And he declares on top of the building effort, of course, that then Persia is going to bear the entire cost, which is what Cyrus ordered, so that whatever's needed, not just for the work of building the temple, but also running it, maintaining it, the actual operating costs of the temple. And it's interesting the degree of detail he uses in specifying what is going to be provided. And see, he would seem to know a great deal here about the kinds of sacrifices that are practiced in a Jewish temple. And there's no indication he received this knowledge from Cyrus's edict. There's nothing in what was read. He just seems to have this understanding. Could the Lord have been revealing this to Darius just as he had earlier revealed himself to Cyrus? And we just don't have it recorded, maybe. Finally, he commands that anyone who opposes the Jews would be executed by impalement. Impalement, for those who are curious, was a common method of execution in the Persian Empire. It is a forerunner to crucifixion, which the Persians also invented. One end of a beam is sharpened, the other side's planted in the ground, and the sharp point is stuck in about right here, and you're just hung on it until you die. Darius liked to use it a lot against his enemies. He had 3,000 rebels killed by impaling in one rebellion. But in this case, you notice it goes a step further. He declares that anyone who tries to stop the work will be defeated by the Lord himself. He would seem to suggest that, though I doubt he knew the Lord as Savior, there's no indication of that. Nevertheless, it seems the Lord impressed upon Darius's heart the seriousness of it, the urgency of it, and his own power to keep the work on track. You look at the three kings we've now been introduced to in the story up to this point. Nebuchadnezzar at the very beginning as we leave the book of Second Chronicles, then Cyrus and now Darius. These three men stand as pillars that testify to the Lord's capacity to work through the unbelieving world, both in his wrath and now in his mercy. When God was angry with Israel, he used Nebuchadnezzar, as we said. Nebuchadnezzar, in his own mind, was attacking because he wanted to destroy and conquer lands and for selfish purposes, build himself up in his own glory. But he was acting as God intended, which ultimately enhanced God's glory. 
The Lord let him loose on the people of Israel. They experienced the power of him and his army, but he was just an instrument of God's wrath. And as we saw earlier, they figured that out. His choice to use Nebuchadnezzar was grace. How can we say then that the use of Nebuchadnezzar was grace? Well, the Lord chooses to use what is truly a blunt instrument to deal Israel a light touch. If you compare it to what would have happened had God executed the destruction himself. Nothing would have remained, as Sodom and Gomorrah proves. And then, when the time was right, the Lord uses Cyrus to conquer Babylon and eventually to free the Jews. Now, he becomes the most powerful man on earth, and yet even he sees his own will bent to the will of God. God directs Cyrus to act just as the Lord promised he would do centuries earlier, even naming him in Isaiah's book. And Cyrus goes the step further and provides the wealth for the project. Do you think he would have done that? Of his own volition and will, would it have been an idea that would come to the mind of a despot king to free his captives in such a way? If God can do such a wondrous thing for the people of Israel and bless them in such a way, using a Gentile king who is otherwise their enemy, imagine what miracles he's prepared to do to work through the king of all the earth when he arrives. It's the same argument Paul makes in Romans 11. If by their disobedience we have received blessing, then what will their glory be? Speaking of Israel. And then finally, the Lord brings a third king to complete the work. Darius declares the work to be completed uninterrupted. And he commands the power of the realm to support, defend, and fund the work. He even threatens this horrible death to those who would oppose it. So again, the question, if the man working on God's behalf will act in such a terrible way, with such a terrible penalty for any who would oppose the work of the Lord, then how much more will the Lord's own penalty be for those who oppose him? So as a result of Darius's edict, the work continues now to completion. There's no more interruptions. And as we complete the chapter, verses 13 through 22, we see how that goes about. Then Tatsunai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar, Bozanai, and their colleagues carried out the decree with all diligence, just as King Darius had sent. And the elders of the Jews were successful in building through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Ido. And they finished building according to the command of the God of Israel and the decree of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. This temple was completed on the third day of the month of Adar. It was the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. And the sons of Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the rest of the exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. They offered for the dedication of this temple of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, And as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats corresponding to the number of the tribes of Israel. Then they appointed the priests to their divisions and the Levites in their orders for the service of God in Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. The exiles observed the Passover on the 14th of this first month, for the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were pure. Then they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the exiles, both for their brothers, the priests, and for themselves the sons of Israel who returned from exile and all those who had separated themselves from the impurity of the nations of the land to join them to seek the Lord God of Israel ate the Passover. And they observed the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy for the Lord had caused them to rejoice and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria toward them to encourage them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. So the Persian governor goes back, does what he's asked, directs them to continue building And the people persevere. Ezra credits 
two works of the Lord, two things that the Lord is responsible for doing. First, that the Lord would send prophets, he says, to stir the people. That's the first thing he credits for why they got back to where they were. And then secondly, he credits the work of the Lord through the kings who came and established that purpose, who supported it. That's reminding us the Lord is in control of all things in creation, always is, always will be. That control, then, is exercised first and foremost through his word, as reflected here by prophets and as now reflected in the Bible that we hold. That word goes out to accomplish his purpose, and it will always do such. Then secondly, apart from that, but under the counsel of God's word, secondly, the Lord is directing the steps of men, Proverbs tells us, so that nothing in creation is acting outside the Lord's purposes and plans. That's how he works all things to good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. It is through his absolute sovereignty of everything that happens that lets him assure us of that promise. And even in this small moment, Ezra is reflecting that by simply saying through the prophets and through the kings of the world, we were able to succeed in this endeavor. He mentions three kings. We know two of them. But the story hasn't gotten to Artaxerxes yet. Artaxerxes plays no part in the rebuilding of the temple. He's the king who will eventually protect the city so that the walls can be rebuilt in the time of Nehemiah. Here, once again, you see Ezra summing up the events of the whole entirety of that time, even though he's only at a moment of it right now in the story. And then, finally, the temple's finished. And a proper temple service can be observed for the first time. And to commemorate that, we're told, they have this massive... Sacrifice of animals at this new temple. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of animals are being sacrificed to thank the Lord. Now, this number sounds pretty impressive. And I bet if you were to imagine what it must look like to have that much blood shed, you know, you you just imagine this huge scene. Just amazing, I guess, in one way or another. But interestingly, this pales in comparison to Solomon's celebration for the first temple. In the first temple, he sacrificed, get this, 200 times more animals than this. 200 times more animals than you just read about. And that might be in keeping with the lesser magnificence of the temple or their own resources, whatever it may be. Notice, though, they also do something very interesting when you consider their mindset. They offer a sin offering for Israel, but notice they offer it for how many tribes? Twelve. Notice that there are only three tribes represented, largely speaking here. But the fact that they're still seeing themselves as an Israel of 12 suggests that though 10 may have been largely lost or those people are gone and, and maybe a few remain, Nevertheless, the nation still sees itself as a nation in a land that's been given to 12 tribes. And if you're still counting 12, even after all these years, it would suggest you still have faith that God is going to keep his promise concerning 12 and not just the three that are left. And then we hear the dedication takes place in the month of Adar, which is roughly late February on our calendar. It's been in this moment now as they do this, it's been about 21 years since the foundations were laid and 70 years since the Jews lost that first temple. So the first temple stood for exactly 400 years. The second temple is going to stand for 593 until it's destroyed by Titus in A.D. 70. And if you're doing your math, that leaves seven years for an even 1,000. There is a third temple that's going to be built during the tribulation and will stand for seven years until Christ returns. So the first, second, and third temples stand for a total of 1,000 years. The fourth temple that comes after Jesus' return will stand for a thousand years in the thousand year reign of Christ on earth. Then five weeks later, after this celebration, we are told they celebrate the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. 
They are joyful, we're sure, and we're told they are for the chance to obey the law that had been given them, for the chance to share in this meal. And they thank the Lord's work through an Assyrian king. But wait a minute, Darius is not Assyrian, neither is Cyrus. But because their kingdoms had inherited the prior kingdom that Syria held, Syria gave way to Babylon, which gave way to Persia. And Assyria was the classic enemy of Israel in the days prior to their dispersion. So uh, in a simple way, I guess, if you were to say who is the United States' enemy in the first half of the last century, everyone would say, well, it would have been Russia or Soviet Union, to be more specific, right? There's that sort of archetypal enemy. Well, the archetypal enemy of Israel was Assyria, not their only enemy, but it was sort of the big one, the one that they thought the most about. And once Assyria became Babylon and then Babylon became Persia, you see the people saying here that the Lord is working through our enemy to do good for us. And they label it as Assyria just because that's the traditional name for their enemy. So now this chapter brings an end to the first step of the three steps of restoration. The people have shown repentance. They've shown a willingness to obey. They've persevered in the test that God has brought them, and they are now expressing joy over God's faithfulness. Those steps are a far cry from the life of disobedience and rebellion and godlessness that marked their time before the dispersion. So there's no doubt of where they stand now relative to the past. This is a lesson, I think, for all of us to take away when we consider what does it look like when someone makes the turn? It's nothing like who they were. Small degrees of change are not what God is looking for, and neither should we be fooled by that. What we're looking for is something that's a far cry from what got us into the trouble we are in the first place. Parents, you know this, and particularly with young children, it's very easy to see when they have that truly repentant heart versus the crafty attempt to win favor so they can get out of trouble. You know the difference. And so God has seen what he needed to see in Israel, that first step of clear and unmitigated repentance and now obedience. But if that, if that were the end of the story, then each of us would remain a babe in Christ forever and, and never expect to go any further. But there are still many things missing, missing from their relationship with God, which he intends to restore. First, they are largely ignorant of what it means to follow and obey the Lord, of what the word itself holds. They are reading the word and doing their best to follow it to a limited degree, but not in any full way. And they're going to have to now receive instruction and guidance to ensure they remain obedient and they grow in the knowledge of who God is. So what they lack is a teacher, someone who can come alongside. Secondly, they lack leadership. We keep emphasizing the fact that there's no clear leader in this band. They have men leading in one capacity or another, and they've made it through all these construction projects. But they themselves, you notice, and this is very interesting because it's not typical for Jewish mentality. They don't run to a name when they credit how they reached this successful conclusion, do they? They don't say, thank you, Zerubbabel. Thank you, Yeshua. The other man we hear mentioned, right? What do they say instead? Thank God that he sent prophets and thank God that he controlled the kings. Now, that's always the right thing to do. But the point is, they wouldn't know who to credit on an individual basis if they tried. For God has restricted them in that respect. When God is first leading us in that early stage of restoration, it's him and us, not us and other people. No one is going to create repentance in the heart of a disobedient child of God, but God himself. Now that they're back on a road of progress in one sense or another, they need that one who will guide and lead them in accomplishing God's will. They need leadership. So we start next week in the next phase of God's restoration. Step two, as I number them, the step in which Ezra arrives. Chapter seven is the story of Ezra coming down to Jerusalem almost 70 years after the temple 
has been constructed. And in the third step, which begins in Nehemiah, we see the leadership coming as the final step of restoration. And we'll do our best as we go through all of this, of course, to compare what happens to them with what God may do in our lives as well. Heavenly Father, Lord, give us each the grace that you gave your children in Israel. Have mercy on us for our mistakes. Grant us repentance as we walk away from you. Be patient through our failings. Continue, Father, to bring us tests that we may pass and eventually move forward. For those, Father, we know who may be in a similar situation, we pray these same things, that their hearts would be turned, that they would be humbled, and that they would be restored. And we ask, Father, as as well, that we might come back and we might finish what you've begun with this study so that we gain the full fruit of it. And as it be your will, we ask that others would join us too. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.